Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Whistleblower protection legislation often has bipartisan support, yet it seems to take forever. Now a bill to extend federal protections to contractors was supposed to get marked up in January in the House Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, but now it's sidelined. We get more now from the Policy Council at the Project on Government Oversight, Joe Spielberger. Joe, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. And this new bill, then, is pretty significant. Let's talk about the bill itself. What does it purport to do, and and why does it matter in the pantheon of whistleblower issues? So the Expanding Whistleblower Protections for Contractors Act is a bipartisan bill. It was sponsored by Senators Gary Peters and Mike Braun, and it's been heavily negotiated to have strong bipartisan consensus. It's really a common sense bill that simply updates the laws and closes some of the loopholes that are barriers to people coming forward to expose misconduct. So some of the provisions are that it would provide enhanced protections for whistleblowers who challenge misspending that occurs internationally. It explicitly protects those who refuse to violate the law, and it empowers inspectors general to seek discipline against government actors who retaliate against contractor whistleblowers. And this is an especially critical time for Congress to make these protections in the midst of a surge of new federal spending. For instance, the Justice Department's Inspector General Michael Horowitz has estimated conservatively that just with regard to COVID spending, that there were maybe up to $100 billion in fraud in that spending alone. And that's a huge amount of taxpayer money that the government has either lost or has to try to reclaim. Back in 2009, when Congress passed the $800 billion stimulus, they very wisely chose to update contractor whistleblower laws at that time to create what were then considered to be best practices. But as all laws need to be updated and maintained, unfortunately, Congress has allowed these laws to languish so that they're not providing as much protection as they should. So what specific protections then would contractor whistleblowers have? Maybe there's two contexts here. One, they are blowing the whistle to the government or they're blowing the whistle to their own company management. We're not talking about major reforms here. We're really just talking about closing some of those loopholes that really act as a barrier and have this chilling effect that prevent people from being able to come forward. So we just want to make sure that these laws are operating as Congress intends to make sure that there is accountability for taxpayer funds. But as it stands now, a corporate whistleblower is protected from retaliation and from losing their job if they report something to the government? They have limited protections, but as we've seen, they're really not doing a strong enough job of ensuring that whistleblowers have safe avenues to be able to come forward. And so this is just simply updating those laws so we can keep up with those best trends and closing those loopholes again, for example, with regards to spending and misspending that occurs overseas. That's just one example of where there just needs to be an update to provide better protections in those situations. Because the uh, government whistleblower protections, those have been updated, right, in recent years. It really depends on, you know, what context we're talking about. One of the challenges with whistleblower laws 
are that it's really a patchwork of different laws across the federal government. And so it's really challenging when we do see smaller improvements in different areas that protect small subsections of whistleblowers, while other employees and contractors are really left out to dry. And so, you know, unfortunately, we're in a situation where it's really hard to make those major changes across the board that we fundamentally need. And so, you know, we're we're just really trying to do what we can for the employees and the contractors that we're able to help better protect. We're speaking with Joe Spielberger. He's policy counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. And what then is the status in Congress? There was supposed to be a markup. Congress is sort of enmeshed in a lot of other things, like going around in circles, you might say. And so what happened and what are the prospects for this latest bill? This latest bill was scheduled to be marked up by the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, they had to recess before considering the bill. However, Chairman Peters stated that he does expect to return to consider the bill in committee. So we are hoping to see it back on the committee's calendar very soon, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And is this something the House will throw away because the Senate passed it or is there House support here, too? That's a great question. Most of our advocacy effort has been on the Senate side, but we are confident that this bill will get strong bipartisan consensus. As I mentioned, it's been negotiated very heavily, and so we're optimistic that, especially as the Senate considers it and hopefully brings it to the floor to pass, that there will be similar bipartisan support on the House side as well. And you mentioned overseas spending, and we've seen you know, the uh, special inspectors general for Afghanistan and earlier Iraq reconstruction found just endless lurid reports of overspending and bad construction and you name it. And one of the objections to support for Ukraine coming from some members of the House is that there is a lack of accountability. They would like to have a special inspector general for Ukraine spending. And Lord knows there's probably plenty of potential for that. Could this whistleblower bill help with protection of people that might blow the whistle on misspending or overspending with respect to the Ukraine aid that could flow there beyond what already has? Absolutely. It's a really great point. And again, this is one reason why timely piece of legislation as we're in the midst of these really high stakes negotiations about aid to Ukraine, about aid to Israel, and whatever funding flows in that direction can be seen as very ripe for fraud and misspending. And so it's absolutely vital that as we are committing to new spending, that there are safeguards in place so that we can make sure that we keep fraud at a minimal level and that that funding is spent appropriately and how Congress intends. Joe Spielberger is policy counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll keep an eye on that legislation. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, 
Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. 
Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human centered. The human centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just in time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.